they're visiting the places that Jesus went, you know, I just think that's so amazing. That's probably got to be so impactful for them. But it's going to be impactful for us, too. So today, as they said, and as I'm sure most of you know, today is Palm Sunday. Um, And the message that I have had laid on my heart um, today, God actually planted in my spirit months ago when I didn't even know I was going to be preaching on Palm Sunday, and he just sort of ended up weaving the message of Palm Sunday into um, what he has been really just laying on my heart. And this message has actually been very costly for me to put together this week, um, in a good way. And I really believe that God had to, in order to speak about what he has been so heavily laying on my heart to speak about, I felt like he really needed to humble me this week um, to remind me of the pathetic mess that I am (laughs) uh, without him. But just for a second, I want to just kind of get into um, briefly the, the meaning of Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday is the day that we celebrate as the, the day that um, Jesus rode, you know, into the city of Jerusalem on the donkey called the Triumphant Entry. Um, it takes place one week before his resurrection, and it's the beginning of Passion Week. So these are the final days when Jesus was alive, starting on this day. Well, not necessarily this day, but you know what I mean. Um, Palm Sunday was the day leading up to the very final days of his earthly ministry before his death and resurrection. Um, And the passage that we are going to look at first to uh, to just read through the story of Palm Sunday is in Matthew chapter 21. Um, Starting at verse 21, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As they approached Jerusalem and came to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with, a colt, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, my, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Pray with me real quick. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would just direct the rest of this message, that everything that you would have to say to us, that you would have to say to me, even if I'm the one speaking, Lord, that it would come out, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, and that you would impact us, and that you would use this to draw us into a deeper relationship with you, and meaning moving into this season of Easter, this season of victory and celebration, God. And I just pray that you would prepare our hearts for what we are about to receive this morning. Amen. Thank you. So the the significance of Palm Sunday. I'm going to be honest, as I was growing up, I definitely didn't really get it. 
I didn't see what the big deal was. You know, I obviously in children's church, we always did a craft with the palm leaves and all that stuff, but um, it didn't really click for me for a very long time, if I'm being honest. So I just want to unpack two things in these scriptures real quick. The first thing um, is in verse 4 that talks about the fulfillment of a prophecy. So the people of Israel up to this point, they were looking and waiting. They've been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for the promised Savior Messiah um, who was going to set them free. And so this prophecy that is specifically referenced in verse 4 comes from Zechariah chapter 9, um, titled, The Coming of Zion's King. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this passage is referring to that promised king, that coming king, and it specifically says here, it's talking about a donkey. I don't know about you guys, but for me, whenever I visualize a king, I typically would picture him on something a little bit more majestic than like a work animal, you know, a, a beast of labor. And so why the donkey and why not a war horse? So in the ancient Middle Eastern world, leaders who would ride into town or ride in to meet someone on a horse typically meant that they were there for, uh, like, war purposes. You know, they would ride horses into war. But if a king was going to visit a city or a place in peace, coming in peace, he would ride a donkey. That was just the way that things were done back then. And so it's interesting, even in that prophecy back in Zechariah, it specifically says a donkey because Jesus came to bring peace. And so right there from the beginning, we are already sort of seeing, you know, the people of Israel are looking for this great, mighty, glorious king, but he's showing up on a donkey. So we're already getting a little bit of a hint here that he might not exactly be the king that everyone was expecting. The second thing are the the things that the crowd was shouting, Hosanna, To the son of David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, The word Hosanna means save now. And the phrases that they were shouting, um, they were actually quoting from the Psalms, um, scriptures and passages that were known by the Jewish people, by the Israelites, the people of God, to be prophetically speaking about the coming Messiah. So this crowd, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Like, that wasn't a mystery to them at this point. Like, he's the one. Like, they were getting it. And so they were celebrating it. They were laying down, the laying down of the cloaks was a symbol of something that you would do to give someone the royal treatment, you know, and they were praising him. But unfortunately, the celebration was not to last because their understanding of the Messiah was, it was, it was twisted and it was skewed. See, the people of Israel wanted a king who would come to demolish their enemies. They wanted to be set free from the rule and the oppression of, the, of Rome. Um, you know, they, they were probably, I would imagine, looking back to the Exodus. They were thinking, like, we're looking for plagues and the sea to be split for this, like, mighty, powerful move of God to just, like, demonstrate his power over all these people, just epic proportions. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to rescue them politically and nationally, but Jesus came to save them spiritually. 
They were looking for a king that was going to go to war and to fight battles on their behalf in this present world and these present issues. But Jesus had come to fight the final battle over sin and death. He did not come to conquer earthly kingdoms, but to conquer the grip that sin had over us. And so even though countless multitudes, these crowds on that Palm Sunday were waving their palm branches and they were laying their cloaks down to give Jesus this royal treatment, this Messiah that they were celebrating, they missed the true reason for the presence of Jesus that day. They missed the true reason that he was there. They could not see or even understand the cross. They were, they were missing the point entirely. And in Luke chapter 19, there's another passage uh, and another gospel about Palm Sunday. And here we see that after that incident where Jesus, you know, he's on the donkey and he's going through and everyone's praising him, Jesus actually looks over the city of Jerusalem that just cheered him on and gave him worship and he weeps and he mourns over it. And that's because he, he knew their desperate need for a savior. And he knew that they were not looking to be saved from their sin if they were looking for something else, which just further, you know, deepens the understanding and the knowledge that they needed a Savior to begin with. The same crowds that shouted, Hosanna, you know, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That same crowd just days later would be shouting crucify to send Jesus to the cross. And as I was reading these passages, this got me to um, thinking to myself, they had made Jesus to be the savior of the wrong thing. They made Jesus to be the savior and the Messiah of what they wanted to be rescued from or what they thought they should be getting uh, rescued from. And eventually, yes, like obviously Jesus did come uh, to conquer their enemies and to set them free, but it was so much bigger than that. It was so much bigger than just the stuff that sometimes we look at. And so I, I had to ask myself, what have I made Jesus to be in my life? What have I decided that he is my savior from? Is he just sort of a guardian angel sort of a concept in my life? It's just nice to know that there's somebody there, uh, like a comforting concept, that there's just some higher power that loves me and that's looking out for me. Am I making Jesus somebody to just be who, he just gives me whatever I want and he gives me all the things that I need Am I looking to Jesus to just make my life happy and easy and content? Is Jesus just a good tradition that I want to raise my kids up in church in? Or is Jesus the, a light giving me license to do whatever I want? Because he's, he took care of the sin and he took free, or I'm set free from it, so I can just, I can sin as much as I want because I'm forgiven, right? I think it can become easy to make Jesus the savior of the wrong things when we let ourselves forget the reason that he came in the first place. So I think that God clearly had this all planned out because next Sunday is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, where we celebrate, you know, that Jesus rose from the dead and the victory over sin and death. But before we approach that season... I think it's important to have a conversation about whether or not we fully understand why we needed him to do that in the first place. Scripture makes it very clear that our God is a just God. 
He is fair. He is the ultimate judge. He's the ultimate source of truth, the definer of right and wrong. But before we can fully understand the justice of God, we also have to understand the wrath of God. Fun topic, right? In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So when we're talking about God's wrath here, we're not talking about it in the same way that we would probably talk about it as like when we are feeling wrath or when people are that way. Um, When we talk about God's wrath, we're talking about a deep, divine sense of just aversion and repulsion to all things that are evil, to all things that are unholy, that are not of God. J.I. Packer summarizes in his book, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ennoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to the objective moral evil. So really, God's wrath is his love and action against sin. And so when we look at that verse in Romans, um, Romans chapter 118, why is God's wrath being revealed? It says his wrath is being revealed. Why? Because people suppress the truth by their wickedness. That word suppress means to silence, to withhold, to cover up. And those two words that are used in that verse, it says that the, the wrath of God is reveal, being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people. The word godlessness in that verse is asabia, uh, the original Greek, which means a lack of respect, showing bold irreverence, refusing to give honor where honor is due. And that word wickedness is adikia, comes uh, from the roots ah, which means not, and dk, which means justice, so literally meaning the opposite of justice, a uh, violation of God's standards, what is contrary to his righteous judgments. So this lack of respect, this violation of what God is and what he stands for is distorting and burying God's truth, and all of this is happening as a result of the sinful condition of man. God's wrath is, is just and it is rightfully placed. And it's, it's not that he's pouring his wrath on us, but he's pouring it out on our sin because he has to. Because if the righteous judge allowed sin or was okay with sin, then he would no longer, everything about who he is that makes him righteous, it would all be for naught. And so any distortion of the truth, any distortion of that justice, he just simply cannot stand. It's just, that is his nature, that is his character, and that is why he is God. And when humanity rejects the truth of God, when we distort the truth of God, a false image of God is then created in its place. And this is what we commonly refer to as idolatry. In a false view of God, a, a view that puts idolatry into any place in our life, even in small spots, whatever, it ends up producing a false understanding of the way that we should live life itself. So, I want to talk about sin for a little bit here. In the very beginning, human beings were created to worship and to serve God and to rule over the things that God created in his name. In Romans 1, 22 and 23, it says, 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So people were able to worship. We had this ability in the very beginning to worship freely and intimately the the glory of the immortal God on such like a deep, close, personal way. But instead, man chose to worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Instead of living for God, we decided to live for ourselves, for our work or material goods. And in doing that, we reversed the intended order. We were meant to rule over those things. But when we began to worship and serve created things, the created things then came to rule over us. And as a result of that shift, that unnatural shift that was never meant to take place, that's why we are subject to disease and disaster and death. We live for our own glory by toiling in the dust only to return to the dust ourselves. We live to create a name only for our names to eventually be forgotten. And Romans 1.21 reveals that the reason we turn to idols is because we want to control our lives. We want to be the ones in control of what happens in our lives, despite the fact that we owe God everything. We aren't just sinning because we're getting drunk. We're not just sinning because we're having sex outside of marriage or because we're withholding tithe and not giving to God but we're sinning because we're looking to other things. We're creating idols in our life to make us feel happy, important, and secure, and ultimately to save us. We're looking to things. We're looking to these created things instead of the creator to give us everything that we should be looking to our creator for in the first place. And as a result of the fall of man in the garden, Every part of man, so every part of our our fleshly human nature, our emotions, our flesh, our minds, our will, has all been corrupted by sin. And even though we have absolutely been created in the image of our Father God, the sin still distorts that image. It's almost as if we've been created to mirror his image. So if we are the mirror, our mirrors have just been smashed and there's just kind of cracks. We're, we're, still, we're still the mirror, it's still there, but it's just distorted, um, and it's twisted now. And um, sin affects all areas of our being. It affects who we are, it affects what we do, um, and, and, and it controls us. You know, the Bible makes it very clear that we are a slave. We are slaves to sin before Jesus. And I'm, the reason I'm talking, this probably seems really weird, I'm talking about sin a whole lot, I'm not trying to be like heavy or judgmental or self-righteous or anything. I just, we need to understand that the need was great. It's important to understand what sin has done, how it has d- twisted not just us, but our relationship with God. It has distorted the, this creation that we are living within. So if we, we are just like this mirror that's been bro- broken with these splintered cracks all over, and the consequences that resulted from sin, um, I think are so much more than we care to like acknowledge or realize sometimes. Adam and Eve, 
this is, I love this image. I love thinking about it, and I know that I have access to God's presence this way, this presence this way, but to think that Adam and Eve were able to do this before they sinned, I, it's, I don't know, I, it's kind of blows my mind a little bit. But in the beginning, Adam and Eve were familiar enough and they were close enough with God that uh, Genesis 3.8 says they heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden. So they were just, they knew him so closely and they were walking with him so intimately, so freely with no barriers at all that they could hear his presence moving through the garden. That's, that's amazing to me. It's beautiful. And God designed humankind to be relational at its core. He designed us for relationship. God could have spoken up from his throne down to Adam and Eve. That would have been perfectly acceptable. But he chose to be in their immediate proximity. He chose to be down with them and walk alongside them. But then when Adam and Eve committed the first sin and plunged the human race into this permanent... um, sinful state, they created a spiritual barrier for mankind that severed that direct access that they had had to him before. We lost our right standing with God, which led to separation. So we are, we are literally separated from God. As a child of God right now, imagining just the relationship that I have with him and the closeness that I feel with him, thinking about being separated from him is horrible right now, just thinking about that concept. But that's what we're born into because of sin, because sin is so heavy that it separated us from God. And sin also opens our eyes to the guilt of sinfulness. We, you know, when Adam and, um, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, it literally says that their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and then they felt shame. And shame is the result of that. And the proof of our shame is that we're constantly trying to shift blame for things that happen onto other people. And we never want to take responsibility for it ourselves. You know, we see that with Adam and Eve. He went to Adam and he basically said, she did it. And he went to Eve and she said, the devil made me do it. Just right there instantly, the shame Instead of the earth working for us and in harmony with us to provide everything that we need, as a result of sin, the earth would be cursed to not work so easily. And that man would sort of suffer and toil and labor in order to have. The earth would still provide what we needed, but it would be a lot more than it could have been. The earth and the sun and this universe itself are in a slow state of decay. You know, even, even science agrees with that. We experience sickness and pain in our physical bodies, sorrow and shame in our hearts. All of these things, the result of the sin. But the most disastrous consequence of sin was death. And the Bible talks about three different types of death that are the result of sin. There's the physical death. Um, Mankind was not actually meant to experience physical death. They were meant to live forever with God in communion with him. And as a result of the sin, um, the physical death became a part of life. It affected the physical body in a way that it led to physical death. The second type of death is spiritual death, and that just is pretty much referring to that separation that we have from God, um, that because of the sin that is within us, we, we can't have that right standing anymore because God can't let us be in right standing without covering the sin. 
And then the third type of death is eternal death. And that one stands for, um, obviously, you know, when we, we die and we end up spending eternity in death because we never chose to receive the life that Jesus paid the price for and offered for us. And what's important to know, this is just like common sense, like Sunday school plan of salvation kind of stuff here, is that mankind could not possibly do anything to justify or to satisfy the justice necessary to atone for our sinful nature. There's nothing that we can do. People have tried for, since, since the beginning of time, you know, um, even Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned, they realized they were naked and then they were ashamed. And so their, their attempt to fix things was to, you know, cover themselves with fig leaves because they were like, oh no, God knows that we're naked and now we know we're naked. And, um, but that, that didn't cover for the sin, you know. That didn't really do anything. That didn't change anything. In Romans um, chapter 3, verse 9, says that all of us have sinned, that there's no one who's exempt. doesn't matter if you were born into a Christian family or if you lived your life like Mr. Rogers, that every single one of us has been born into sin and that we've all fallen short at one part or one point or another of the glory of God. And scripture is also clear that sins can be committed both by unbelievers and believers as well. To know the rules and the theology, you know, to be even an expert of the Bible, um, that, that doesn't guarantee immunity or, from sin. That doesn't guarantee, like, a right standing with God to have, like, this in-depth knowledge of all of the scriptures. I mean, if you look in the New Testament, the Pharisees that Jesus was constantly coming into contact with, they were the teachers of the law. They dedicated so much of their lives in the most intense ways, to know the law of God front and back. Yet those were the people that Jesus seemed to call out about their sin more than anybody else. Superior knowledge does not guarantee superior behavior. And the law was not given to God's people to make them better, but in a sense to make them worse. And let me explain what I mean by that. The law was given, you know, and I'm referring here to the law in the Old Testament, you know, all of the sacrifices and the rules and rituals and things that they had to go through in order to make sacrifices for their sins. It was not meant to be a cure for their sin, but it was meant to reveal to them their sin so that by knowledge of that sin, they would be humbled, they would be broken, and they would have no other option but to seek the grace uh, um, through faith in Jesus. So it probably seems like this sermon is a real downer right now. But earlier I had mentioned that this sermon was costly for me. This week alone, as I've been preparing or attempting to prepare, God has made me so aware of the frailty and the pettiness of my human condition that is my old fleshly nature. That just because I am saved now doesn't mean that I don't have to strive to sin no more. It doesn't mean like, okay, I'm good. Like, I've got God. I'll need him when I want him. Like, no, I need him all the time. 
And through everything that I went through this week, God just gave me so much revelation of how great my need is. My need still is. He is my personal Savior. He has saved me from sin, and I have salvation through him. But I still need him. My need is still so great. So how can man possibly overcome this problem of sin? The only way that this can happen is that God has to overcome our depravity in a way that we can recognize the spiritual state of hopelessness and the despair and the condition that has us set apart from God. We have to understand that, you know, if, if you don't know Jesus, you've got to understand that that's where you are, and if you have him, you need to understand that that's where you were. And that nothing's changed. The, the depravity and the horrible effects of sin that enslaved us, those are still a reality. Even though they've been taken care of now, we can't just walk away and forget how much we needed Jesus in the first place or else we're not going to remember that we need him now. The only way that man can truly respond in faith to the gospel message and to the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. So the only way that we can truly appreciate and celebrate Easter, in my opinion, is by recognizing the sin that had enslaved us. And if we downplay the seriousness of the crack that's in our mirror, we risk minimizing the desperateness of the human situation. And if we minimize the desperateness of the human situation, then we discount the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross because that's why he came. That was God's plan from in the garden when that first, as soon as sin entered into the picture, God's whole plan for this earth and humanity was to redeem his people, his creation from the sin that has corrupted it. And he, his plan ultimately, Jesus has come, but his plan is still to ultimately eradicate sin from the earth and for us to be able to live in that original peace and harmony that Adam and Eve had with him in the Bible in the very, very beginning. Like, this is our whole faith. If we, if we downplay the need that we have for Jesus, if we downplay the seriousness of sin, we are basically saying that our faith is whatever. Because that's why Jesus came. This whole season, Jesus came because the need was too great for us to take care of or meet on our own. He didn't just go to the cross to wipe a smudge off the mirror. He literally came to do nothing less than bring the dead back to life and to set the captive free. Only God could forgive our sins against him. I mean, that, that's just logic. If somebody where to offend me, I'm the only person that can forgive them for that. Someone else can't forgive me on their behalf. Only God could forgive our sins against him. But he, because he is a just and a righteous God, there had to be an atonement. And the, atone, to the word atone means to make amends for or to satisfy or make reparations for a wrong injury. So that the sin the sinful nature that we were born into, that disobedience, the, uh, um, those words um, earlier about wickedness and godlessness, um, those things that we do, lack of giving God respect, all of that, we have done God wrong, and there needed to be a means to justify that, and that means was too great for anything that we could handle. Even the sacrifices that they offered in 
the Old Testament and the Jewish people, all of the things that they had to do, it was all temporary and it was all ultimately to point to the one true sacrifice that would be Jesus. He had to be, he alone had to be the perfect sacrifice because that was the only thing. That's how much we needed in order to cover our sin. That is how great the need was that we had to have a perfect, pure, blemish-free, spotless lamb who was God himself, sacrificed himself, his blood spilled for us. That was what we needed in order to be set free from the sin that held us. 1 Peter 2, 22-25 says, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You were like sheep going astray, but you have been returned. Jesus is restoring that original intention, the original desire of that intimacy and relationship that God had planned between us and him from the very beginning. And we hear and we use that phrase a lot, I think, in church or maybe even just in the world, the, the I'm, I was lost, but now I'm found, you know. But that phrase doesn't really hold as much weight if you don't realize how lost you really were in the first place. It's only when we recognize our desperate need for salvation that we can understand what it really means and respond properly to it. Until we can see our own sin, we can't respond to God's grace in a way that brings true repentance and relationship with him. And I think that if, if Jesus and the idea of serving Jesus and having a relationship with Jesus, if it doesn't excite you or if it doesn't seem that passionate to you or maybe if Jesus in your life is just one thing on a list of many of just these are the different things I have in my life, I think that you're missing out on something here. And I, I, I don't mean to say this to condemn anyone. I'm not, I'm, I am just as in need. I am just as guilty but we, we're missing on, out on something when we downplay sin. When we look at what it was, we understand what he did, and the only natural response to what he did is love and devotion and passion and like just adventure, just everything. In closing, I just have a few more thoughts. In, um, in Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he writes... Of the biographies I have read, few devote more than 10% of their pages to their subject's death, including biographies of men like Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi, who died violent and politically significant deaths. The Gospels, though, devote nearly a third of their length to the climactic last week of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saw death as the central mystery of Jesus. Jesus came to earth with a primary cause and a primary agenda, and that was to die. While most of us know that someday we are going to die, ultimately, I doubt that any of us grows up and goes through life with the ultimate goal of dying, but that was what Jesus did. His goal 
was to die, and it was his death, not his life. Even though his life on earth, it set an example for us, and it was important, but ultimately, it was his death, not his life on earth, that was destined to be his greatest achievement. Because it was his death and resurrection that reconciled the human race back to God. Going back to the Palm Sunday scriptures that I read at the beginning, the people of God were looking at Jesus to be the savior of what they wanted from him. They had their idea of what he was going to give them and be for them, but they were blind to what he really came to conquer. It was more than that. It was bigger than that. And I think that we need to ask ourselves, what have I made Jesus to be in my life? What have I decided that he's my savior from? Is it just this one part of my life or is it everything? Do I understand that I needed him to save me from every single part of myself because sin has infected every single part of myself? And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of us would have been in that crowd that day shouting and being excited about, you know, God has done, things are going great, he's given me what I want, like I'm excited, I've got promises. But then as soon as he doesn't give us what we want, or the way that we want it, or when we want it, or any time that God tries to maybe confront the sin that still exists in our lives, we're, we're right there in the crowd days later shouting crucify. With our words, with our actions, with our attitudes. True faith agrees with God about what is sin. We can't water it down. We can't pick and choose. This one's okay, but this one's not as bad. Because he paid a very, very high price to set us free from that. And it doesn't matter if it seems like one is greater or less than the other. It's all still sin. When we truly understand, when we truly let ourselves confront the depth and the depravity of the sin that held us, that holds on to us, only then can we understand what Jesus did. We need to know why he did what he did. We need to understand that our need was great. When we could do nothing, there was nothing in our power, even though man has tried, there's nothing in our power to break us free from the bondage of sin that has held us. And even when we were living as enemies of God, Christ died for us. He took our shame, he took our weakness, and he took the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. God looked at us and he saw our wickedness and our godlessness. And he knew that his wrath had to be poured out on that sin. Like he, he, there was, there's no part of him that could just say, I'll make an excuse this time. Because it would just go against everything of who he is, just the purity and the holiness of who he is, what makes him God. But he also loved us. And so he couldn't let it stay that way. And that is what happened at Easter. That is the meaning behind this week as we are approaching that Jesus was making his way to the cross. He was approaching the climactic moment of all of history to set us free from that, to bring God's people to a place of repentance where they could receive forgiveness for their sins through faith by the grace of God alone. And true acknowledgement 
of our weakness, true acknowledgement of our sinful nature, looking back to the way things used to be, or maybe even the sin that might exist in our lives as believers today. It's, it's hard to do that. It's not in our nature to want to be convicted of sin. You know, that's, that's that old self. It's not in our nature to want God to confront the sin that we are hiding in our hearts. But I, I, I'm telling you, if you don't let God do that and ask God to do that and willingly try to do that, you won't grasp the significance of the whole purpose of God's plan for all of mankind and just for you, your relationship with him. The sin that wrecked us, that tainted us, that condemned us to life and ultimately led us to death, that was a great need that had to be covered. And when we truly understand the great need that we have had, have every day, every moment in the past and the future for a savior to save us from that sin, the only possible response that is left that is appropriate is radical repentance and faith and love and obedience and service, joyful service. Isaiah 53, four to five says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. we choose to put ourselves in a position, to put ourselves in a perspective and humble ourselves to agree with God about what is sin, Holy Spirit will draw us to a place of repentance. And this, this word, when I say repentance, it's not guilt. It's not shame. God doesn't, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but it's, it's this hopeful desire to say like, Jesus, I love you, and I don't want this in my life anymore. You, you paid a high cost to take care of this and remove it from me because it's harmful to me. And repentance draws us to want to turn away from that and turn towards glorifying God and loving him and following and serving him with everything that we have. And this is what my prayer is that we celebrate as we move into this week. That our need was incredible and our need was great, but Jesus is greater. The crucifixion really does become meaningless when we fail to recognize the need fail to recognize and agree with God on what sin is, to see it for what it is. And we, we need to come to a place we are, where we are daily being called, drawn to a place of repentance. And it's, it's freeing. As I've said, this is, this is, if you can take anything away from all of this, it's that repentance leads to freedom. 
because we we weren't meant to carry the sin. The things that we try to hold on to or that we think that we want or that we think that we're entitled to, God doesn't say that we shouldn't have it because he just wants to set rules and regulations. He knows the effects of sin. He understands it more than any of us do what it does. You think it's innocent, you think it's just a little thing, but it's affecting our hearts, it's affecting our relationships, it's affecting God's kingdom purposes and the way that we could be impacting the lives of those around us. We are called to such a greater purpose than just ourselves. And we cannot let sin sit there and entangle us and slow us down as we run the race that's been set out before us. And God paid the price, Jesus paid the price so that we could be free from it, so that we could set it aside, so that we could toss it and just run after him. If you would stand with me, I just want to close in prayer. Oh, Jesus. Thank you for doing what we could never do. Thank you for looking at your people and seeing how great our need was for a savior to the point that you wept over us. Thank you for taking our iniquities. Thank you for bearing our shame so that we wouldn't feel the shame, but that we would just feel conviction and be led to repentance so that we would have freedom, a freedom that we could never have gained on our own, but only through you. I just pray this week as we are entering Holy Week that we would remember you, that we would remember your final steps as you are approaching Resurrection Sunday, this season of victory, this season that I think Satan hates more than any other time of year because it is the time of year that we realize the victory that we have, but we don't just have victory because Jesus conquered death, but we have been set free from our sin. Lord, I just pray that there would be no condemnation on any heart in this room, Lord. I rebuke the spirit of shame in the name of Jesus that it cannot remain here, that it would fall off. Lord, that as you are convicting hearts to draw them to you, Lord, as you are revealing to us in this moment right now, the things of our lives that we, we, have, we haven't been seeing for what it is, these things that are not of you, God. And I just pray there would be nothing there but conviction from your Holy Spirit, Lord, and a draw to release it, Lord, to walk away from it. And I pray that you would just give every single person in this room a deeper and a greater understanding of how much we needed you to do what you did on that cross. And I pray that through that, that you would soften our hearts, that you would deepen our love for you so that we can truly freely and abundantly celebrate Easter, Resurrection Sunday, for what it really is. Because it wasn't just the what of what you did, but it was the why that makes it so great. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, 
presence will lead to intimacy, greater intimacy with you, Lord. And I pray that you would increase our passion for you and that we would see, because your word promises it, that if we seek you, that you will fill every part that we allow. And I pray that we would hold nothing back, that there would be no part of us that we would keep hidden or that would be set under a rock or set to the side, but that we would freely give every single bit of ourselves because that's exactly what you did for us. Lord, I just proclaim victory and joy and blessing upon each and every person as we walk out this week and as we approach the great celebration next week. It should be a celebration all the time, but just especially this Easter Sunday, Lord, that something would be different than it has in years before. Thank you for meeting our need, Jesus. Thank you, God, so much for what you did, that the, the peace that we have, you took the punishment that brought us peace. generous, amazing name.